You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. when you first heard about the idea for Massimoca and what you thought about it? I'm thinking, like everybody else, what is contemporary art? And then when I saw a little bit of it, I thought, oh my God, what is that stuff? People in North Adams are not ready for this. North Adams, Massachusetts, once bustling and prosperous, its main street now is virtually empty. All of a sudden, Tom came in with this great idea, but this great idea was totally antithetical to what this town was. An art museum? A modern art museum? What's that? I feel that it is a waste of money. The fundamental message that we put on the table was that art museums were an 18th century idea in a 19th century box. They had to confront the limitations of the box. Oh my God, no way. There was some trepidation because my, my stuff was a little, you know, had pictures of drug paraphernalia and lots of other elements that were less than totally savory. So if the state of Massachusetts were to put in, say, $35 million of taxpayers' money, is this the kind of art that you would propose putting on view? And I said, well, yes, this is exactly the kind of work that we would show. I see this as, say, sanctuary of sorts, but it's also this migration hub. So this is where they all come together and Nasdaq communicates. It's sort of a metaphor for us as a people. This is just this place of imagination and dreaming. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Jennifer Trainer, director of the 2019 documentary Museum Town. It's a nice look at a town that was brought back to life through the power of art. Definitely check out museumtownmovie.com so you can see where the film is playing near you or if you can rent it through your local art house. Let's keep the arts alive. Enjoy. Tell me the Jennifer Trainer story. I like to think of myself as a Renaissance woman, but for a long time, it seemed like maybe it was just a scattered woman. <laughs> I graduated from Tufts University, and while well, all my peers went on to business school and law school and medical school, I hopped on a sailboat. I loved to sail, and I delivered four small sailboats from Maine to the British Virgin Islands. And then after about six months, I decided I, I needed to move to New York and 
get a real job, and I became an editorial assistant at Simon & Schuster. And it was right after the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster, and we were just inundated with anti-nuclear book proposals. I was 23, and I wrote a memo to my boss, and I said, I thought what was needed was a book which fairly gave both sides instead of a diatribe one way or the other, because I I thought I was anti-nuclear, but I didn't really know the facts. She said, that's a really great idea. And she told me she was firing me because I was really a lousy assistant and that I really should be writing and I should do this book. And I said, well, I'm 23 years old. (laughs) And I'd, I'd written a few newspaper articles for the, you know, my local newspaper and, you know, high school, but that was it. She said, oh, find an expert. So the poor guy, Dr. Michio Kaku, was a distinguished nuclear physicist at City College working on the superstring theory, and he had submitted a very anti-nuclear book proposal, and I took him out to lunch, and he thought he was having lunch with an editor at Simon & Schuster and not a flunky who had just gotten fired. So I told him that we were rejecting his book, but did he want to do one with me? And fortunately, he said yes. That was the beginning of my writing career. We ended up writing two books together, one on nuclear power and one on uh, one uh, my my bestseller by far. uh, It's called Beyond Einstein, and it was scientists' quest for the the unified field theory, which was like, you know, the holy grail of physics for the 20th century. That's some heavy stuff. It wasn't really heavy because I knew nothing about science. I was one of those kids who didn't go past 11th grade in science. And so I would question everything. He, you know, he'd say, they think the universe began in 11 dimensions. I'd say, okay, how many are there now? Four. What are the, what's the fourth one? I know length, width, and depth. So I made the books really readable and he made them legitimate. And that was the beginning of my writing. And I think this film is just a continuation of my writing, you know, 30 years later. Were you able to support yourself through your writing? Some years I did. I was able to support myself through hot sauce. It it does all come together at some point. But when I was delivering those Hinkleys to the Virgin Islands, which is like, you know, being asked to drive a Maserati on the Amalfi Coast. I mean, Hinkleys are just this beautiful sailboat. When we'd land in these islands in Virgin Gorda and Tartola, uh, Dyke, you know, there were always hot sauces. And they would be like at the Rotary, there'd be women sitting with checkered tablecloths on a card table you know, pushing what used to be rum bottles, and now we're filled with these wonderful concoctions of chili peppers and vinegar. So I totally fell in love with hot sauces. And when I moved to New York, those were still the days where you could put bottles in your bag. I came home with a lot of hot sauces, and I had about 50 in my pantry. And every time somebody came over to dinner, I couldn't get them out of my pantry because the labels were so hilarious. Like, I am on fire, ready to die. And there was another hot sauce called Last Rites, which showed a chili pepper in a coffin. They were just, they were outrageous and wonderful. So I wrote a book about hot sauces, and then I did this poster of my pantry. It ended up selling over 100,000 copies, and I was on Good Morning America, blah, blah, blah. And so I, for a few years there, I was able to make a living on my books and my posters and things. My father's like, you go from nuclear power to hot sauce. You just go from explosion to explosion, Jennifer. (laughs) How does the museum enter your life? 
I moved to the Berkshires in the mid 80s and I was a freelance writer. I was working on my, I've written 19 books now, but I think then I was working on my third book and a writer's life is very isolated. And so I would go to any any place that invited me. So I, I got wind of a cocktail party at the Williams College Museum of Art, which was a small college art museum. And the director was there, Tom Krenz, and we started talking and he told me about this outrageous idea. He had to turn, uh, you know, this vast derelict factory complex into the world's largest museum of contemporary art. And, you know, contemporary art then was about as popular as camel wrestling. I mean, it was really, it was out there. And Tom is a very tall man and talking to him was like, walking into a wind tunnel. It's just like, and I was really taken with it. So I called the times and I got, I got Eric Asimov who was on the Metro desk and he was Isaac Asimov's son. And so he, he, uh, he didn't give me a byline, but he commissioned me to write the first story about Mathmoca. So I did. And I called it a derelict factory complex. And what was so ironic is I was really annoyed I didn't get a byline and I probably got paid like 50 bucks or something. But years later, the mayor of North Adams was still annoyed that the New York Times had called his town a derelict mill town. So I, of course, I never told him that. He didn't know that I wrote that story until the movie came out. How would you define contemporary art? Because I think that there's a little vagary around that term for some of the listeners. Contemporary art is really after World War II. You know, modern art takes you up to, up through World War II, and contemporary art is, you know, what's what's made today, what's made yesterday, and really since the 1950s. And that's a really good question. People do struggle with that all the time. So you write about this, but then you end up working there, is that right? I was really taken with a project and when I when I actually saw the factory I just fell in love with it. It was it's magnificent. If if it, it, it was like Siena, Italy. It had three it still does. Had three courtyards, two rivers, moats. It was 28 buildings on 13 acres and it had started before the Civil War as a textile mill that they printed patterns on fabric and they they actually printed uniforms the colors for northern soldiers during the civil war and it's it's snowy rural new england and so in the winter they would have to get these bolts of fabric through all 28 buildings without going outside so all 28 buildings are interconnected and they're all they're catawampus to each other because they weren't designed they were just what's practical and one of the courtyards only exists because the bleach house over over the centuries just disintegrated and it created a courtyard. And so it was this fantastic place and and so sad because it had been the heartbeat of this city. It, it was a small city in Massachusetts, 12,000 people, and 4,000 people worked at the factory, Sprague Electric. And they they pulled the plug on, they you know, the factory closed down right, right around the time that I moved there. And in those days, every single person you met in North Adams had a connection. They had worked there. Their parents had worked there. Their grandparents had worked there. The factory, they had a, a company orchestra. They had a company newsletter. They had a company daycare center. It was really the heartbeat of this little city. And 
it was so sad that it it was just such a beautiful place. A little bit like Miss Havisham's wedding cake, where it's crumbling and in total disrepair. Tom Crenn was incubating this idea at Williams College, and the Massachusetts governor at the time, Michael Dukakis, was intrigued by it and released money to conduct a feasibility study. And it would be a year that a team would analyze whether this was a harebrained idea or not. So I heard that it had gotten that first step. So I applied for a job. I got hired and we weren't even a museum. We, you know, we had, we didn't own the buildings. We didn't have any art. We didn't have any visitors. We didn't have a constituency. It wasn't like a college with an alumni base. You know, other than all that, we were golden. We were the executive planning group. And so I thought I was being hired to be the head of PR because, you know, I pitched them that I knew how to write. And when I got my business card three days later, it said I was the director of development and public relations. I had no clue what development meant. And it took me like three days to screw up my courage to go ask, you know, was, was, I, in charge, was I in charge of future, future construction? <laughs> But no, I was I was in charge of raising the money. And then I stayed for 28 years. Where does the film come in? Where does the Museum Town documentary actually start for you? I started working at Mass Mocha in 1988. It took Mass Mocha 11 years to open in 1999. It was a putt to the moon, to be sure. And I knew that I had witnessed something rare. It could have gone either way. And I, I like to think that I would appreciate the journey if it had gone either way, because, you know, it's sort of like the show West Wing, it, where it, it's a lot of smart but ordinary people trying to do extraordinary things. And I started thinking about how did Yankee Stadium get started and how did the Met get started and, you know, the Detroit Museum of Art. How did that, how did Ford Motor Company get started? You know, all these things were just an idea in somebody's head and it was super hard to do. And life is littered with all the times where ideas never make it. And so I knew that I I had this story and I had witnessed this and I'd, I'd, felt, I'd been part of it. There are a lot of great stories, funny stories. I mean, if you've seen the film, the story about David Byrne and talking heads, you know, you can't make that up. And so as one of my roles as development director, I would lead trips for donors. And for the last 20 years, I've been leading donor trips to Sundance to the film festival with Rachel Chanoff, who is an independent curator and, and producer. And around 2010, the museum was 11 years old. After watching like five documentaries back to back, I just turned to her and I said, I need to make the story of Mass Mocha. She slapped her hand down on the table and she said, if you do, I'll produce it. And it took us another 10 years, but we did it. The one thing I would say, to, I, I say to women in particular, but I really say it to anybody is that I was in my 50s when I started this film. And I think I'm fairly brave and I think I have, you know, a risk aversion factor that's pretty low, but, you know, trying something you've never done and the the looks I would get, you know, people would say, uh, what else have you made? So sort of say, well, it's my first film and they, they complete disdain. And I just kept feeling myself and thinking, you know, Steven Spielberg has his first, every single person has their first of everything. You had your first podcast. And 
this is really an important lesson to remember. Tell me more about the people that you then got to help you out with this because your crew, I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar with Polar Rappaport stuff. Um, I'd like to know more about Kirsten Johnson. I mean, these are some really talented folks you're surrounding yourself with. Rachel and I started watching all these documentaries that we liked and we would take notes. And then we both really liked Kirsten Johnson's work. She's a, a noted cinematographer and director in her own right. And she, she's done camera person and oh, a lot of films. And so we just reached out to her and, you know, we got lucky. And with Pola, we actually started with a different editor and I, I knew nothing about, I mean, you know, the night before we were filming, I was like trying to download like one of these online, how to be a director kind of case. I mean, it was just ridiculous, but the editor wasn't right. And I didn't realize when I began the film and I certainly know now that films are made in the editing room. And I consulted with a film storyteller in Australia and I said I was having problems with the editor that I thought that they were very good, but they just, you know, you, you spend 12 hours in this tiny room with your editor and you gotta, you gotta be on the same page. And she said, ask her if she loves your characters. Cause I loved my characters. And I asked her and she said, I liked some of them. We knew then that we needed to get another editor and Nothing against her. The edit, the first editor was very, very talented. Just it wasn't the right kind of mix. That's when we found Pola, and we got so lucky because she and I were joined at the hip for about a year, and she was just a great editor. Her husband Wolfgang was also one of the cinematographers in the film. He did he did the sort of the really beautiful sweeping aerials. Near the end, there's this installation by Michael Oatman, which is basically a a, a motorhome that looks like it's crash landed on the on this bridge and he pulls up from it and it shows you how great Pola was she you know we had all this footage from 18 months and then she said we just need a few beauty shots just you know this is a visual film this is about a museum we've got a lot of great shots about art but we just need a few stunning just like you know just luscious and I was like, oh, my God, we were at the end of filming, at the end of our budget. And he came for two days, and he was so precise. He had my assistant take pictures of what I thought I wanted him to shoot at different times of day and and record the time of day and, and what direction he was facing so he'd know where the sun was. He's so precise. He was great. And and the opening and closing shots of the film are his, and they really, they just make it soar. And K.J. Johnson was also, you know, Kirsten, she was so generous. She was on my first few shoots, and she knew that I was first time, and she knew I was nervous. And she just gave me such great pointers that just, you know, will stay with me my whole life. She was, she's very magnanimous personality. And I would say also John Sturrett, who is a music supervisor, Wilco has been having, the, the band Wilco has been having music festivals at Mass Mocha since 2010. So I've known John for 10 years, and he's a very empathetic, talented, lovely guy. And I knew, I didn't want to make a rock dog, but I knew that I wanted 
a lot of music. And I think there's like 62 music cues in the film. And I knew that I wanted the music to be representative of what Mass Mocha is. So, you know, it's all over the place. It's Lucius, it's Big Thief, it's Talking Heads, it's uh, Ruthie Foster. I just asked him to have coffee and asked him if he would be the supervisor. And he fortunately said yes. Once it's completed, what happens with the documentary? Because this year, all bets are off. It premiered at South by Southwest in March of 2019. And then it had a great festival run at you know, Aspen and Woodstock and all, all over the place for like seven months. And then we started to try to sell it and the pandemic hit. We are actually really lucky. We, we found a great distributor, Kino Marquis. And it was released on Friday. And what's really neat about it is that it's being released in virtual cinemas. So you can go on Kino Marquis' website, or you can go on our website, musicintownmovie.com, or you can go to the Brooklyn Academy of Music's website, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston's website, and you can buy a ticket, and it gives you the link to watch it in your home for five days. And 40% of the $12 ticket price goes to the nonprofit that is, is carrying it virtually. So you can support your favorite nonprofit while also watching the film. And what are you doing now? Are you still hot saucing? Uh, what keeps you busy? I left Mass Mocha four years ago to become director of a different museum. It's called Hancock Shaker Village. It's a 750-acre site with 20 historic buildings dating back to 1783. The Shakers settled this community in the late 1700s. And, and so it's a, it's a living history museum, but it's also a place where we see the world through a, a contemporary lens with Shaker values and ethos. So for example, Maya Lynn did an installation of, of uh, the Housatonic River watershed two years ago that reflected their strong sense of community. In they, they established a grist mill on this river. They ground the corn for their neighbors. They were very communal oriented. It's a pretty cool place. And I, I've been director there for four years. And, you know, they, they believed that work was a form of worship. You know, they had a phrase, hands to work and hearts to God. So they didn't just make a chair. They made a chair to perfection. And that's why, you know, Shaker design is sort of a... A revered American aesthetic, really. Are you looking for other film projects? I'm percolating on it. It was really fun. It was really hard, but it was really fun. I always just follow my path of what intrigues me. Like people used to say, you know, how can you go from the unified field theory to hot sauce? Or how can you go from nuclear power to a contemporary art museum? And I, I really, I like to do what I find interesting. I have confidence it will all weave together someday. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Anyway, well, thank you so much for interviewing me. They built this whole neighborhood out of wood, out of wood. I guess I'll still be around when they burn, burn it down. I will be standing around when they burn it down. 